0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Excuse me, maybe seated. Uh, we do have Redemption Hill Kids this morning, so if that serves you, parents, we got Redemption Hill Kids for ages two to four, and then five to nine. Thank you for those who are serving. You can maybe dismiss right now. Thank you, Layla, for serving. Thank you, Erica. I'm not sure who else is in there, but thank you. Jocelyn, thank you. We also have kids' sermon notes in the hallway, along with uh, some totes with some goodies in it. So if that serves you and you're staying in, great. You can grab that right now. <laughs> kids are off and running. All right. So good to see you all. Uh This morning we are continuing our our sermon series called The Grace of Salvation, and it's a sermon series, and the the purpose of the sermon series is to look at and identify various aspects of how God saves. That is so central to who we are as a church and what we believe, how God saves, right? And so we're just taking our time and looking through that. In just case you're wondering, we're going to get back into a book in the Bible. we are getting into the book of Hebrews in the next few weeks. But I wanted to stop and slow down and be like, okay, this is really foundational to who we are and what we believe. And we also want to know, in light of God's gracious, uh, graciousness to save, what does it mean to live out your life, right? And so we're eventually going to walk through that as we think about sanctification in the weeks ahead. Because there's implications for being a Christian. As I've said before, when God saves, he makes demands upon your life. And we need to, need to hear that. So, at the end of this sermon, I hope to answer that question, now, now what, right? Great theology, fine. Now what? So the saving act of God, as I was kind of thinking about this, and this is an, an analogy that I've heard before. is like a diamond. Maybe you've heard that. And every week, I've been turning the diamond to look at another aspect of the gospel. And I'm trying to show how these various aspects of the gospel are connected to one another. You can't disconnect them, but they're actually connected. And this morning it could be argued that I'm actually going to share with you the most important aspect of the diamond. At least that's what some say. Now, I don't want to speak in hyperbole, but the doctrine of justification is critical when trying to understand the gospel. Critical. I will share with you why it is essential in a moment but I want to raise the expectation of what we're going to see from Romans 3. And as I raise the expectation of what we read and see from Romans 3, I also feel like the weight of preaching this passage. I, I was listening to a pastor preach on this text before, and he said, as Pastor John Piper, if you're familiar with him, he said this is the most important paragraph in the entire Bible. Like I said, and I think about that, and I'm like, why am I preaching this? <laughs> you just don't feel equipped if that's true. But there might be something to what he said there. Now, before I pray and begin, here is an end goal, a couple end goals for this morning. If you are a Christian and you're hearing me this morning, I imagine there'll be some yeses and amens. Uh, But I want you to bask in what God has done through Christ. Like... Imagine being locked in home for 30 days. Maybe some of you can imagine that. But then you go outside for the first time and you feel the rays of the sun. It feels so good to be in the sun. I want this sermon to be like that for you this morning. As we look at Romans 3. Far too often Christians can take for granted what God has done through Christ. We become apathetic or disinterested in thinking about what God has done to save us. I know that's true of me. So I want you to grow in your understanding of God, grow in your faith by increasing your affections for God as we look at the doctrine of justification. I think Romans 3, verse 21 to 26, has the potential to help you see a, a, big, a bigger God who loves you very much. So that's one end goal. Another end goal is for those who do not follow Christ. In every room that I preach, there's two sets of people. Those who follow Christ those who do not follow Christ. I pray that you would experience the sweet liberation of being declared not guilty of your sins before a holy God. Not guilty. Those two words, so important. Not guilty. Yes, since the events recorded in Genesis 3, God has been on mission to liberate his people from the power, from the guilt, and the shame of sin. And in doing so, God is restoring the broken relationship between God and man. May the God of grace and mercy reveal to you the saving power of faith in the gospel. So if you do not know Christ, that is my prayer for you this morning, that you would know God. So let me pray. We'll get into it. Heavenly Father, as I expressed, I need your help this morning. And I pray for those in front of me, they would, they would receive your word. Lord, keep air from my mouth. My pr- prayer is that in the power of the Spirit that I would be faithful and clear. Thank you for your word, and that your word is clear. May it minister to our hearts this morning. And ministering to our hearts may it impact our lives. Amen. This week, I bumped into a good metaphor about the doctrine of justification. Uh, for a moment, think about your digital footprint. Think about all the information that is about you on the World Wide Web. <laughs> like a lot, you actually paused. I, I pause to think about it and I'm like, whoa, social media, right, your Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and this other stuff too, right? Your banking, every single website you've ever visited like, there's a lot of stuff out there. We don't really pause to think about it, but we're just so connected to the Internet. I heard this saying, and I think it's true, the web never forgets. <laughs> the Internet never forgets. Now, how many of you would like to take back your social media post or that website you visited? Right. Anybody got a list of, like, oof? bad idea. How much you like to want that erased? How about all of it erased? If you had the opportunity to declare inform- informational bankruptcy, would you do it? I know I would. If you could pull a lever and all of it would just go away, that one time, one time shot, just to get rid of all the information about you that's on the internet, would you do it? you can delete your digital footprint and just simply start over. The idea of declaring informational bankruptcy, I'm just kind of making that up, is a helpful metaphor for justification by faith. Just as your digital identity is vast and it might define you, so is sin. Our sins are many, and oftentimes sin defines people. Our sins are also an offense against our creator. And what we need is not only forgiveness. We need to be forgiven, but we need a brand new spiritual identity. Because of what we read in Genesis 3, God has been on a mission to give us that new spiritual identity. We need someone to cancel the debt and the accusation that is against us. We need a clean slate to start over. We need justification by faith. The 16th century reformer, uh, Martin Luther, if you know church history, you've heard that name before, Martin Luther, said that the church stands or falls on the doctrine of justification. That's quite a statement. Like, when you think about, not all the doctrine of the Trinity, <laughs> the nature of Christ, his deity and humanity, that's quite a statement. Now, many years later, Couple of generations later, a man named Benjamin Keach made a similar comment. He said, The doctrine of justification is one of the greatest and most weighty subjects I can insist upon. It is acknowledged by all Christians to be fundamental to religion and salvation. By re- religion in his context, he meant Christianity. The comments made by, by Keach are correct on two fronts. The doctrine of justification is weighty. As I prepared for this sermon, like I said, I felt the weight of this doctrine, and the importance of being clear and precise. Second, Keach also pointed out being justified is central to understanding how you are saved. It's central. Have you ever wondered what is the dividing line between, say, Catholics and Protestants? It's the doctrine of justification. Have you ever been curious about the difference between what is taught in this church and the Catholic church down the street? Like, that's a huge deal, the doctrine of justification. I mean, we had an entire Reformation around this. I mean, many, many many different issues and questions going on, but central to it is, like, how are people saved? I mean, I know there's many other differences between Protestants and Catholics, but this doctrine, more, more than any other, is the divide. Like I said, at stake is the question, how is a person saved? Or, to ask the question a little bit differently, how is a sinful person made right before a holy God? The prophet Isaiah um, exposes why these questions need to be asked. He said in Isaiah 64, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Passage that we're looking at this morning is situated in the middle of the greater argument being made throughout the book of Romans. Um, I didn't do this intentionally, but you're going to know what the book of Romans is all about by the time we're done today because we're looking. I'm going to show you how Romans is connected, specifically to Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. Beginning in Romans 1, verses 18, and leading up to today's passage, verse 21, chapter 3. The apostle Paul argues that all humanity is guilty of sin before God and before a God who judges. You are in the cosmic courtroom before God and you need to give an account for your sins. That's where we're at. That's the argument Paul is making. You got to give an account. How do you plead? Right? How do you plead? That's the question. I mean, please be honest with yourself. What verdict do you deserve? If you evaluate your heart and deeds against God's holy law, have you fallen short? Romans 3, 21 to 26 is the response to how God deals with sin. Justification. Now, Before I walk through our verses in Romans 3, here's a short definition of justification. As my friend Tells me often, define your terms. Justification is a legal pronouncement by God. In other words, justification can only can occur only when God, who is himself just, becomes the justifier by decreeing, or I'll use the word declaring, someone to be just in his sight. Now, if you appreciate legal jargon, the doctrine of ju- justification is, co- is forensic. Justification is a legal verdict pronounced upon a person in our situation, by the divine, by God. What you're going to see is that you cannot justify yourself before a holy God. You are not sitting in the judge's seat, but you are sitting in the defendant's seat. The prosecutor's case against you is not only strong, but it's irrefutable. There are no Christian sacraments that you can perform that can cause you to be justified before God. As you, see, as you will see, only faith in the man upon the cross allows the judge to declare you not guilty. Only the man upon the cross, faith in him, allows the judge to declare you and to, de- to de- decree not guilty. The book of Romans, particularly chapters 1 to 11, is an extended logical legal reading. I I don't know if this is true, but I've heard before that some law schools have their students read the book of Romans to understand the logic of Paul here, right? It would take years to go through the entire book verse by verse, but for today, I want to ask and answer two questions from our passage. Here they are. Here's question number one. Apart from God, what is my condition? Right? Apart from God, what is my condition? Question number two, in light of my condition, what do I need? What do I need? Answering these two questions shows us the importance of justification. I'll answer the first question, starting in verse 21. We read, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The Apostle Paul stresses several points in verse 21. The Old Testament bears witness to the righteousness of God. The law, like think about the Ten Commandments, for example, highlights our inability to live rightly before God. We are unrighteous. And the law points to God's holy standard. In a legal and judicial sense, God has every right to judge us against his holy law. The standard has been set. And God has the right to say, have you lived up to that standard? Have you met that standard? Now, it is worth pointing out that it is not just those who are aware that God's law exists that will be judged. All people will be held accountable before God. Allow me to connect some dots, as I said I would, about the overall case being made in the book of Romans. We read in Romans 1, I'm going to read this at length. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. There's that word again, unrighteousness who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So everyone's held accountable. There's a a suppression going on because of sin. For what can be made known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we can, we can tell from creation. We can look around and be like, ah, something's being declared here. So they are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images res- resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. All people can perceive God through what God has created. A sense of truth, goodness, and beauty can be made known by looking at the world around you. However, because of sin, truth is suppressed, as I said, and lies are received. Because of sin, some people have taken what has been made plain and have twisted God's order in creation. In particular, the glory of God, which is supposed to reside in his image bearers and be displayed in the world, God's glory, that glory is being exchanged for cheap and chintzy glories of this world. It's like someone gives you the Corvette. All of a sudden you're like, no, I'm going to take that rust bucket down there. It's like, what? why would you do that? Why are we doing that, right? We have traded God's glory for the fading glory of video games, addictions, power, money, entertainment, a job. In the context of Roman, Romans 1... What has been exchanged is God's good design for marriage and sex for a version of sex and marriage that is an abomination to God. The perversion of God's created order is going to be judged. Long story short, God's righteousness can be known through creation, through the law, and God's righteousness is preeminently revealed through Jesus Christ. No one No one, no one is without excuse. Which means we're in a whole lot of trouble unless God provides a way. If we jump to verse 23 in Romans 3, we read how the Apostle Paul makes his way back to Romans 1. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I'm not great at English. I'm not an English major, but I'm fairly certain I know what all means. Like, all. (laughs) If I were to start in Romans 1 and make my way to Romans 3.23, you would see how Paul builds his argument about the dreadful condition of man. God's good creation and order are being upended, and we cannot live up to God's good law because of sin. All people have sinned. Not just a few, not just half of the world's population, all, every single person. In verse 23, it says, all fall short, right? Many of you who grew up memorizing Bible verses, this is one of the first ones. All fall short of the glory of God. The idea is not that you're running a marathon and you fall short of the finish line. The sense is that you have fallen short because you have exchanged the glory of God for the glories of the world. That's how we have fallen short. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, (laughs) dude, didn't you cover this base a couple weeks ago? Didn't you talk about sin already? And the answer is yes. I did talk about sin, but here's why I've I've needed to talk about it a little more. First, I think it's true to say that in America, you can go to a church for a couple months or a couple years and never hear the word sin uttered in a song or in a sermon. There's reasons for that, right? We don't want to be offensive. We want to be kind or whatever, right? But here's the deal. You cannot talk about the gospel and more specifically the doctrine of justification without talking about sin. A major emphasis of the gospel is to make you uncomfortable with sin. The gospel is supposed to make you feel uncomfortable with the sinful glories that you indulge in. So yeah, you need to see the sinful condition of your heart because it's only after that can you rightly understand how awesome God is, how gracious he is, how merciful he is. Only after you understand the sinful condition of your heart can you truly understand what has happened at the cross. You need to answer question one before you really can get to question two. So if you have responded to question one to say that your heart is inherently sinful, that's your condition, and from your heart, sin is manifested, you can now move on to question two. In light of my condition, what do I need? What do I need? Sandwiched between verse 21 and verse 23 is the beginning of an answer to the question. We read in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I'm sure how you see uh, how this sermon is connected to last week's sermon. According to verse 22, faith and justification are connected. God has acted in his righteousness to make it possible for all to be justified by faith based upon the redemptive work of Christ. In this way, righteousness is attributed to those who believe. Like Back to the courtroom analogy for a moment. The judge is looking at your rap sheet and has every right to throw you in prison. But there's only one reason, one reason only, that he would not condemn you and send you to jail. You do not plead not guilty before the judge because you know you are guilty. That's not your plea. Now, this is very important because this is how the gospel has been cheapened. The gospel does not allow you to declare yourself not guilty. But the gospel allows the judge of the universe to declare you not guilty. Now, you can respond and say, in light of what he said, I'm not guilty. That's fine. But the declaration comes from God. Your only hope as you plead before the judge Is Jesus Christ. By faith, your plea is based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. You look to the Son of God who took on the wrath of God at the cross. The Father no longer holds you accountable for your sin and he sets you free from the power and penalty of sin, not because of anything you have done, but because of all that Christ has done. John Murray summarizes what's going on. He says, and I quote, he simply declares that in his judgment, the person is not guilty of the accusation, but is upright in terms of the law relevant to the case. In other words, justification is simply a declaration or pronouncement respecting the relation of the person to the law which he, the judge, is required to administer. There are additional downstream effects of being declared justified by God, and this will lead to sermons in the future here. Namely, what is sanctification? Because you've been justified by faith, God no longer sees a rebellious sinner, but you know what he sees now? Daughters and sons. And by faith in the Son of God, God the Father declares you righteous. Now, I'm about to make another, I think, important point. You cannot make yourself righteous. But when a person is in Christ, it is the righteousness of Christ which the Father sees. The Father declares you justified and no longer condemned. Because of what we read in Romans 3, we can now joyfully embrace what we read in Romans 8.1. So if you ask yourself, hey, we've got a little application going on here? Here we go. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The grace of God in salvation is that you you know that you are not condemned even though you deserve it. Almost every time I read or or preach Romans 8.1, I, I pause and stop and think about a relatively seemingly insignificant word that has major implications. It's the word now. Like in the present, you Christian, as you sit and as you listen to me patiently, thank you, you're not condemned right now. Praise God. The condemnation that you do deserve, you've been declared not guilty. <laughs> Praise God. The word now in Romans 8.1 is so freeing. If God the Father has declared you not guilty, then you are free from guilt and shame. You are free from the shackles that used to be around your, your wrists and your ankles. You are free to get up from the defend, defendant's seat and then walk out of the courtroom with your Savior because he rose from the dead. Allow God's word to give you a greater understanding of how the verdict was achieved, why you're not condemned, which resulted in your freedom. Let's read Romans 3, verses 22 to 25. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, how? By his grace, and this is important, it's a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Might be a new word for some of you. We don't read, this word doesn't show up too often in the New Testament. It gets translated as atonement sometimes. Put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. First, it is critical to point out that the gospel is offered to all, Jew and Gentile. All people are invited to hear the gospel, even though not all people receive the gospel. Here are a couple more points on this on these verses the declaration of not guilty as i said is a gift it's a gift it is t- it is pure grace that you've been declared not guilty and i want to encourage you to settle that truth into your heart like the moment you begin to think you deserve or contribute anything to the not guilty verdict from the judge you, be- you begin to betray the grace of the gospel it's all god and it's all his grace Next, we need to see in greater detail how the declaration of not guilty is possible. Like, how is that even possible, right? How can God be justified to declare you not guilty while maintaining his righteous character? Like, that's at stake here. If God is unrighteous because of his declaration of not guilty, then I'm not sure that's a God worth worshipping. I mean, do you see kind of the conundrum here? A good and righteous judge will deliver the proper sentencing, as it were. But when a judge does not deliver the appropriate sentencing, we question the judge's character. Again, you and I deserve condemnation. You and I deserve for God to throw the book at us. And yet, the opposite verdict is reached. How does Paul arrive at his conclusion in verse 26? Like, his conclusion ends up being this. It was to show his righteousness, God's righteousness, at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. How does he arrive at that conclusion that God is just and the justifier? In verse 25, we read that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, or if you want to say atonement, by his blood. So what does that mean? All right, what does propitiation mean? Why are you using a word I can barely pronounce, right? <laughs> propitiation. Propitiation is the biblical doctrine that the death of Christ fully satisfies the demands of a righteous God. Every person, as I said, deserves to be judged, and the question is how can God's righteous judgment be satisfied? Well, only the perfect Son of God could satisfy God's wrath. We read in first John, he Jesus is a propitiation for our sins. the wrath of God has been satisfied by Christ, but what about our sin right if, if god 's wrath has been satisfied, what about our sin god 's wrath has been satisfied, but something needs to be done with our sin. Some say this, this other word expiation we got propitiation, we got expiation. Expiation means to cover or to cleanse or even put away sin, which means Christ atoned for our sins. This is a good way to think about what's going on here with expiation and propitiation, but there's more here. Expiation is about the removal of your sin. It's one thing for Christ to die for your sins, another thing to, to remove your sin. So we need to understand our Old Testament a little bit to understand what's going on in Romans 3. So going to back to Leviticus 16, we read about old, the Old Testament sacrificial system and the process of God forgiving sins. So like we have this Day of Atonement, right? They would celebrate annually. And on this day, two goats were brought to an altar. So let's say we have an altar here, Goat A and Goat B. First goat, you cut, you kill on the altar. I took a graphic, but that's what's going on. The first goat was killed to satisfy the wrath of God. The second goat was set free and pushed to the east. Now, why did that happen? Why did they do it that way? Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The goat was sent away. They didn't, get, they didn't go get it back. The sin has been sent away. Sent away. Because of the mercy of God, your sins have been forgiven and removed. So back to the question at hand, how does God maintain his righteous character while at the same time declaring to you Christian not guilty? How is God still just and the justifier? Here's how. The son of God, the sinless savior, was the ultimate and final sacrifice for the sins of God's people. I told you before, no one is leaving this place without hearing the gospel. Jesus Christ is the decisive sin offering. In theological terms, Jesus was actively obedient to the Father in his life. In his life, Jesus did what the law required of him. He is the sinless Savior. Jesus is the only one who could be declared, like, logically speaking, like he should be the only one declared not guilty. Jesus was also obedient to die. We call this his passive obedience. So at this point, when I was writing this sermon, I think it was Friday, I pictured myself, I'm thinking in judicial terms, and I'm picturing myself like before a cosmic judge, right? A holy judge. And I was asking myself, I was trying to internalize this, Right? what's my response how do i feel in that moment right how would i respond to the accusations leveled against me because of my sin and what kind of emotions would accompany my my thoughts so this is just the picture that kind of came to my head for what it's worth i'm sure you may have a different picture of yourself i pictured myself sobbing on the table in front of a holy god sobbing because i know what i deserve and my only appeal will be to the person in the middle hanging on a cross. My only appeal is to Jesus who took my place at the cross. Therefore, the emotions that did accompany my tears, at at least in that scene in this cosmic courtroom, one was sorrow because it is my sin that nailed Jesus to the tree. Yes, a deep sorrow and conviction of sin but there's another emotion that it, that was paired with my sorrow and it's joy it's joy I'm joyful because God has invited me into his family. He has forgiven my sins. He has breathed life onto my heart. God has shown me my true identity. God has given me a church family. God has shown me the riches of his mercy and grace. God has given you the Holy Spirit. He's given me the Holy Spirit. God has imputed to me the righteousness of Christ, which covers me like a robe. God has given eternal life with him and not in hell. All because God can say not guilty due to faith in the man in the middle hanging on a cross, Jesus Christ. Your sin, Christian, has been dealt with. Your sin debt has been paid for. I've never done this, but someone please say amen. <laughs> right? Right? Now Here's the last question that I want to ask this morning. How does the doctrine of justif- justification impact your day-to-day life? Pastor Rob and I have been talking in these terms more and more like in light of great theology and below average preaching <laughs> how do we take what we learn and live right how do we do that couple thoughts if God has declared you not guilty then no one can tell you otherwise <laughs> right right You can be at peace with God. You do not need to question your salvation, and you should not allow anyone to doubt your salvation. I get it. We're still sinners until Jesus comes back. We still struggle. We still sin, right? But if God has declared you not guilty, you do not need to doubt, and don't let other people cause you to doubt. You can be at peace. First thought, second thought. Every day as you live for God, you do not need to feel the weight of condemnation because of sin. That's why I made a beeline to Romans 8:1. Your past, present, and future sin has been paid for. Some people, especially those who are more sensitive, can be tempted to feel the weight of their sin constantly. It's like a low hum that's constantly in the background, and sometimes that low hum gets a little louder and you just feel the crushing weight of sin, if that's you, you must be reminded of God's declaration over your life. Not guilty. Not guilty. And we'll talk about sanctification in the the weeks ahead, right? But as it stands right now, you are not guilty. Third, if you've been justified, then God continues To be at work to renew your life and to renew your mind. And go to Romans 12 and quote that, right? After a beautiful, beautiful argument of why and how God justifies sinners, Romans 12, verses to the end of the book, chapter 16, is a transition into answering the question, now what? It's it's a beautiful argument. You you know, here's how you're justified. Then you get to Romans 12, it's like, now this is how you live. So if you, if you want more of the now what, which we just don't have time for this morning, go read Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. There's a ton of now what. Tons. The justified sinner, that's my third, fourth point, the justified sinner has been saved because of the love of God. That's part of that now what in Romans 13. And when the love of God hits you, you have the great privilege of extending that love to others. Think about how loving it was for God to forgive and to put away your sin. How is that not loving? right? Therefore, we take steps to display God's glory by doing the same to others. So like I said, we read in Romans 13 that you are fulfilling the law, the law that you've been judged against by loving others. What more incredible answer to now what is there than love? In your marriages, in your families, in your communities, in your work, here at church. The justified sinner is loved and then goes on to love. So, my encouragement to you for this week. If you don't want to read all of Romans, and you're looking for the now what? Start in chapter 12. And just read it and take it in. Let it convict you. Let it change you. May you grow in the grace of Christ. Let's pray.